Ephesians chapter 1, we have been studying Paul's prayer for the Ephesians. He enumerates for them the various requests that he's asking for them. And this is such a help to us, not only to know how to pray for one another and for those that we're concerned about and their spiritual growth, but he also reminds us along the way of the precious truths of our riches and assurance that we have in Christ. In verse 15 of Ephesians 1, Wherefore I also, after I heard of your faith, and he's speaking of their saving faith in the Lord Jesus, and love unto all the saints, that love for the brethren is one of the proofs of regeneration, cease not to give thanks for you, making mention of you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give unto you the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him. The eyes of your understanding being enlightened, that you may know what is the hope of his calling, what is the riches of his glory, of, the inher- of his inheritance in the saints, and what is the exceeding greatness of his power toward us who believe, according to the working of his mighty power. One of the major areas of concern in a believer's life is the matter of full assurance of salvation. Rare is the person who has never had a question about their spiritual condition, about their standing, even after those who've truly been saved. There are times and circumstances uh, that, that come into our lives that may cause us to have an eclipse of faith or to wonder, are we truly the child, a child of God? As Paul writes here in Ephesians 1 verse 18, he's praying that the eyes of their understanding would be enlightened. This enlightenment, this illumination must come from the Holy Spirit of God who shows us all the things of God. We should never forget whatever we're talking about in the spiritual realm. It is by God's Spirit that we ascertain these things and know them. And so in the matters of assurance, as in the matters of all things spiritual, the Holy Spirit is the agent that conveys these things to us. It was the Spirit of God who regenerated us by the seed of God, the Word of God, which liveth and abideth forever. It is He that brought us to that place of repentance and and belief on the Lord. And so all that that God provides for us and has provided for us through the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ, the Holy Spirit appropriates for us and brings to us and shows us So that's what Paul is praying, that you'd be illumined by the Holy Spirit to know of your standing, to know of your condition. Now, God desires that each of us as his children would have this assurance. It is uh, a sad thing to me for those who struggle with this matter, the assurance of their salvation. And he, but, but it's not on God's side or his fault that we do not. He who saves us wants us to know that we're saved. When our Lord prays, uh, Lord Jesus, he prays that all the sheep that the Father has given to him, he will present to him. He will not lose one of them. And so this holy relationship uh, between the Father and the Son to to purchase us and to bring the sheep, and as Brother Brock so beautifully sang Sunday uh, evening about the 99, the shepherd going out and finding every one of those sheep, the, the, the least one that the Father has chosen will be brought to him. So God wants us to have this assurance of our salvation and to enjoy the peace and the comfort of being a child of God. Because you see, this relationship gives us very precious privileges. And assurance is certainly 
so vitally important in the spiritual realm. I mentioned to start with, it is not uncommon for those, even those who are truly saved, to struggle from time to time. And that this should not be a prolonged thing. It should not be a lifelong matter. But it is human, because we are human, to may have questions from time to time. But Paul is writing here and praying for the Ephesians that they would have this assurance, that they would know that they were indeed a child of God. If there's a problem about assurance, it is not on the Lord's part. So that helps us to diagnose, to, to solve a problem, you have to know what the problem is and where the problem lies. So often in human relationships, a problem cannot be solved because the, the parties who have the problem cannot agree on what it is. So there's no remedy for a problem that we cannot at least meet out of what the problem is. So if there's a problem of assurance in, the, in our uh, matter of our conversion, it's not on the Lord's part. Now, some people doubt because they genuinely are not a child of God. They have been shown the things of God. The Holy Spirit has done a work, but they have not truly believed on him. And so that is the convicting of the Holy Spirit to urge them to fully repent and believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. Sometimes because of sin, uh, unconfessed sin or rebelliousness in our part in some matter, the Holy Spirit withdraws his assurance as a matter of discipline so that we will... Uh, rush to the Father and pray as David did in Psalm 51, O Lord, have mercy upon me and cleanse me and and to to show us our need of of restoration and to to show us that if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. I will say that also there are other circumstances, and this is not a, a lesson on assurance and we're not going to exhaust all of them, but different times of life and physical situations may bear on our, the emotional part of the, or the feelingness, if you will, about our spiritual condition. And uh, so sometimes that may be a problem, just a, just a physiological problem that may make us feel that the Lord has forsaken us. We, we see that, don't we, throughout the Psalms. The, the psalmist says, why have you forsaken me? Why am I in this situation? And, of course, God has not it seems that part, that seems that, that, like, that, like that on our part, but not on the Lord's part. So we ought to go before the Lord. The Apostle John, of course, devotes his entire first epistle to this very truth. We read there in 1 John 1, 13, These things have I written unto you, that you may believe on the name of the Son of God, and that you may know that you have eternal life. And this is a, a birthright a byproduct of being a child of God. Now, we notice here how personal and exact this matter is. And he writes here to the Ephesians that the eyes of your understanding, you see, this is something that we must know personally, individually, that the eyes of your understanding, that you may know, he writes. This is not someone else's eyes or someone else's assurance, uh, but yours. Your relationship with the Lord is a personal relationship with him. He saves us individually. We're his children. And a child uh, knows that their relationship with their parent is a very intimate and personal thing. And so this is not someone else's uh, experience, but it's yours. The danger in the spiritual realm is to compare our our experience with someone else's. That's a very dangerous thing to do. When we study the conversions, for example, in the New Testament throughout the book of Acts, which is a very interesting Bible study, the conversion of Lydia compared to the conversion of, of Paul on the road to Damascus, compared to the conversion of uh, the Ethiopian eunuch, 
the only thing they have in common is that they were changed from a sinner to a saint, that they were saved out of sin to believe the Philippian jailer. All of their circumstances were different. And to try to mimic or to put our experience beside someone else's often causes us to fall short, especially if someone was saved from a, in a, from a Christian home. doesn't mean they weren't sinners, but saved at a young age. Or when they came to the Lord, all they knew that they were a sinner and that he was the Savior, and they rested their case with him. And when they grow in grace, they may hear other testimonies or even read the Bible conversions and say, well, the Lord didn't come to me as he did to Paul. Or Lydia, I don't remember my heart being open. That happened, but you might not know it in that way. There was no real uh, feeling of a heart being open and so forth. And sometimes even the very terminology we use can be confusing. But we know that the Lord promises those who call on him, he will, he will save. Whosoever calleth upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. And that calling on him comes from a heart that has been shown our sinfulness and his sufficiency as the Savior. So be careful about uh, comparing or letting your experience, your literal experience, the events that took place, how you felt, where you were, what you said. You know, if you examine, the, again, the conversions of the scriptures, the thief on the cross, the words that he's actually said, you know, maybe it sounds very strange to us, but with this we know he, cha- he was changed from darkness into light, wasn't he? He savingly believed on the Lord because the Lord said of his surety, today I, you shall be with me in paradise. So I think sometimes the fault is on the preacher or the evangelist or the, the soul winner who tries to make a person's experience fit a certain pattern or certain words. We need to know that we're sinners and that Christ is the Savior and you go to him and tell him your need. The Lord will save. Now, beyond examining that experience, you know, we have to be very careful about these things. But let me encourage, in light of all that, every believer to do what Peter urges. When, in fact, Paul says, examine yourselves. Have you, have you seriously examined your profession of faith? Uh, sometimes because of sickness or a doctor's prognosis or life-changing, earth-shaking things in our lives, it may cause us to come before the Lord and say, Now, Lord, help me here. And you examine your profession. That is a healthy thing to do. Again, I think some preachers, in an effort to give people assurance, they almost say, Don't think about that. And somewhere in the past, you made a profession of faith and you shouldn't, Worry about that, and the Lord, who the Lord saves, He keeps, and that's certainly true. But a, a faith that cannot be tested is a faith that cannot be trusted, and so we do need to examine. That's a scriptural thing, and Peter tells us in Second Peter one verse ten: Give diligence. Listen to the language he uses: Give diligence, examine, scrutinize carefully to make your calling, the gospel call, your calling and election sure. Are you certain? Well, you should be. If not, why not? The only way, the only resources, and I say only, they're the only resources we need in this matter, and godly counsel is important. Prayers of other people are important, but it is the word of God that brought faith. Faith cometh by hearing, and hearing by the word of God. It is the word of God and prayer that brought us into the relationship with the Lord to start with. And those are the resources that you use before the Lord to examine yourselves. Now, some people never take time to really do serious soul work, searching the soul. And the reason is because the heart is deceitful, isn't it? 
above all things and desperately wicked, who can know it? And so we must give diligence. And when God gives us a precept or a command, it is our duty to obey it. This is a ministry of the Holy Spirit. When he says that the eyes of your understanding being alike, uh, enlightened, that you may know what is the hope of his calling. That hope is a, a wonderful uh, promise of the Lord, the hope of his calling. This, is a, this illuminating, this assurance is, uh, is a ministry of the Holy Spirit. He oversees and brings to pass all that pertains to our salvation. And this then is a matter of earnestness and prayer and a willingness to confess and to forsake sin or whatever the Holy Spirit reveals to us as we examine ourselves by His Word. The Word of God is a mirror, isn't it? It shows us ourselves as we are. It is a a window to the Lord. It shows us the Lord as He is. And so, in that regard, you may say it's a two-way mirror. It shows us the Lord, but it also reveals to us uh, who we are and what we are spiritually. And we pray to seek out God's ways in His Word. There's nothing of lasting value or any value at all in the spiritual realm that is not based upon and does not come forth out of God's Word. And sometimes the reason there is some doubt and not enjoying our standing in Christ is because we give so little attention to the Word of God, just cursory reading, maybe here or there, snatches, and there's never any real feeding upon the Word of God. This is our sustenance. This is what the inner, how the inner man is fed. Now, if you just eat a bite or two here or there, and that's your, your physical nutrient, nutrient uh, nourishment is not what it should be, there are going to be physiological problems. And if your spiritual nourishment is not on the Word of God, then there are going to be malnourishment of the inner man as well. Now, the Spirit, remember, is the one who shows us the Savior to start with. It is He that convicts us of our sin and our lostness and leads us to repentance and faith. The means He uses is the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. And this is so important. And let me say, there will be no true spiritual work or growth or progress apart from the Word of God. And so that might be, I may have helped you diagnose your situation right there. The devil hates prayer and he despises God's Word. That's why those two areas is a constant struggle. When you read that the the psalmist says, I delight in, in the law. And when you measure your fervor, your thirst, your hunger, and it's not in the delighting category... It may be because you're not availing yourself to these riches, these resources that God has given. The devil cringes when he sees the feeblest believer on their knees. And when you pour out your heart before the Lord, that's the the means that moves heaven and earth. It is the means by which God does all of his work. Jesus says, you have not. Why? Because you ask not. The opposite would be true, wouldn't it? You have Because you ask. You use this glorious means of prayer. That's the way that God has designed it. I cannot explain it. It is a mystery beyond understanding. And yet God says, ask of me and see if I'll not do these things. Well, you should go before him and ask the Lord certain things. Why would we be afraid to ask the one who knows all things? And he wants only our good and our spiritual prosperity. Well, even after we're saved and have full assurance of that, we have to have the Holy Spirit's work within His help 
in continuing to illumine us. The most dangerous thing I see as a pastor, serving the Lord in this one place almost 36 years, is I have seen Christians who reach a point where they know it all. At least they've heard it all. They think. They haven't, but they think they do. They become used to the, the blessings of God, used to prayer meetings, and so they, they kind of distance themselves from it. The very things that the Lord used to sanctify them and bring them to the place where they are, they become to take it for granted and uh, think, well, I know that. I understand all those things. What could the pastor tell me? I've sat under his ministry all these years. What could he tell me I haven't heard him say already? Well, those who know it best are hungering and thirsting to hear it like the rest, the song tells us. We need to be reminded, don't we? We need to be stirred up in, our, in the spirit of our minds to, to these things. And so this continuing process of sanctification, let me just ask you a question. Are you glorified? I'll answer it for you. No, you're not. You will be, but you're not. Neither am I. And so until you are glorified and wake in the likeness of the perfection of the Savior, you are being sanctified and the means that he uses to sanctify us, the very means that he used to save us, God's word and the vehicle of prayer. And so we, this process of sanctification is lifelong. It is ongoing. And let me just tell you, you've not arrived. And I've not arrived. We're not there. And if you do think you are, then you have just believed one of Satan's big ones. And uh, your fall is soon to follow. Now, a good while after Peter had been saved, he made that declaration in Matthew 16, verse 17, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. You remember what Jesus said to him after Peter made that declaration of Jesus being the Messiah? Jesus said to him, Blessed are you, Peter. Flesh and blood has not revealed this to you. Do you understand what we're talking about here? That the eyes of your understanding being opened. Peter, the reason you know that is because the Holy Spirit has shown you. Flesh and blood did not reveal that to you, Peter, but my Father which is in heaven. God will use his word and to speak to, to the heart of a truly regenerate person and that he is born again. And he will use his word to show us other riches, truth, like Peter had been shown about the Messiahship of Jesus Christ. And even in other matters of spiritual growth and biblical understanding and enlightenment, this is a continual thing, an ongoing work of the Spirit. And rejoice in that. Rejoice that you've not arrived, that the God is still perfecting and showing and revealing. Listen, the riches of the Lord are so vast and limitless, we will spend eternity gazing and learning about what is in store for us. And so we've not, we've not, we're just scratching the surface here. I think of all the riches that are still within the depths of the earth. The jewels not yet uh, mined and gold and, and resources that, that, that are there. Now, you listen to some people, they think we're about to use them all up. But I'll tell you, every day we hear of new things discovered and, and uh, new treasures that, that are uncovered. Well, it's certainly true in the spiritual realm. As we've mentioned just before the service, that verse that we so often love to quote, Oh, the depths of the riches, both the wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable are His judgments and His ways past finding out. You can't, you can't get to the depth of them. There's no plumb, there's no, uh, no measurement that can get that, that deep or that broad or that high. That's how 
vast his riches are. This is a matter of prayer. Again, in our text there in verse 18, that the eyes, that those are the spiritual eyes, not your physical eyes, that the eyes of the understanding be enlightened. It's a prayer that we pray for ourselves and that we ask for others. This is a prayer you parents pray for your children. Lord, help them to see their standing. Help them to see, we pray that they'll see their lostness. That's the first prayer that parents pray for their children. Lord, may they truly come to the fact that they're lost. And the, the, the thing is, sometimes parents kind of smooth over that, rush through that. There's never any real conviction in some matters. And so the child just grows up in this spiritual Christian uh, neighborhood environment church. And there's never that true awakening of their need for salvation. And that's the reason there's a lot of problems. And there's vast numbers leaving the church because there's never been true conversion. So the first prayer is, oh Lord, bring them to a place of absolute uh, knowledge of their sinfulness and repentance. And then after that, we pray, Lord, show them this. Show them that. Don't we pray that often? Lord, show them what they need to do. Show them your will. This is that enlightenment that, that, Peter, uh, that Paul is speaking of here. It's a prayer that we pray for ourselves. It's a prayer that we pray for others. The psalmist said, Open thou mine eyes, that I might behold wondrous things out of thy law. Again, the eyes of the inner man. In verse 18, he says what? That you may know what is the hope of his calling. This knowledge, this hope, again, is, is brought to us by the Spirit. Paul writes to the Corinthians in, in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, but is, as it is written, I have not seen. You can't see this with the natural eye. I have not seen nor ear heard, neither has entered the heart of man the things that God hath prepared for them that love him. But God hath revealed them how? How does he illumined us? How has he shown? God has revealed them to us by his Spirit. For the Spirit searches, that word is ransacked. The Spirit searches all things. Now, if you've seen the, like a, a lighthouse, a searchlight, or a searching party in the darkness, searching for someone who's lost. They send this, or some prisoners who escape from prison, for example. That broad searchlight that goes back and forth and back and forth. The searchlight of the Holy Spirit, the Word of God, searches. The Bible says He searches all things. Everything that pertains to us. Yea, even the deep things of God. I've heard Christians say, well, that's just too deep for me. I don't want to think about that. What an indictment. You're saying, I just want to close my eyes to blessings. I don't, I don't want any more blessings. I've got all I need. Oh, what a pauper. What a pauper. That's like saying, I'll just drink this lukewarm water and there's a big pot of coffee in there. You know, I'll just take this. Not, not knowing the riches. You've heard about the woman whose daughter sent for her back in the days of crossing the ocean on the ocean liner. And the little lady didn't realize what her ticket insured her. And she was staying in her stateroom. She'd brought just enough cheese and in, in stale bread to, to the last, but halfway over the, the, the trip, she'd run out, and they checked on her, and she was dying of malnutrition. Uh, they said, oh, don't you know that the ticket your daughter purchased for you affords you three big meals every day in the, in the dining room? Well, that's, what, that's like spiritual, the, the people who are, are spiritually ignorant and, and don't know what all their salvation has, has purchased for them. And I, I don't want to know all those things. Well, you should. You, you should want to know. But the earnest prayer and the sincere believer can, can perceive these things by a work of the Spirit in the inner man. Over and over again, Paul says, I would not have you to be ignorant. 
I don't want you to stay in that ignorant state. Why should we be? Why would you want to be when all of that lavish bounty is laid out for you? We have the all-powerful resources at our disposal. We should not be limping alone as paupers in this world. Spiritually speaking, we may be paupers materially, but not spiritually. Acts chapter 26, verse 18 tells us of Paul's commission from the Lord. He said, Paul, I want you to go preach to the Gentiles, and this is what you're going to preach. And why I want you to go to them? That to open their eyes and to turn them from darkness to light and from the power of Satan unto God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and the inheritance among them which are sanctified by faith that is in God. Not Not are we just to be saved... It doesn't stop there. There's a vast spiritual inheritance spread out for us. Now, some say, well, I know Brother Lamb will go to heaven by and by. Oh, yes, but the verse there, we quoted in Corinthians, I have not seen nor ear heard the things that have uh, entered the heart of man, the things that God has prepared for him. That's in our spiritual experience right now. That's not just in heaven. Oh, there's so many things that God wants to show you and do with you and through you. But he has to be asked. You have to seek. You have to knock. Doesn't Jesus say that? We just read over those verses like, well, whatever that means. No, it means to ask. It means to seek. It means to knock. And to keep on asking and keep on seeking and keep on knocking. I remember talking with a man who had not experienced victory, consistent victory in his life, and he, he just threw up his hands one day and just said, well, I just, this just can't be. It's not for me. And I remember, reminded him Just because you have not personally realized it in your experience does not mean it's not true or that you cannot experience that. We read through that rich portion of Scripture in Romans chapter 6 to see what God said. We so often listen to our feelings and what we think instead of what God says. And our feelings are just that. They're feelings. That's all they are. They're based on something, but God's Word is based on God. And it cannot be shaken. It cannot be changed. It is what he says regardless of everybody and anything. If it makes everybody a liar, God's word is true. He tells us here something about our inheritance. Look there in verse 18. He calls it a glorious inheritance. And that word is a beautiful word, the word glorious. Because God is glorious. The psalmist says the Lord's work is honorable and glorious. It it can... Think about it. Could God's work be anything but glorious? I mean, if someone showed you a, a, a lost painting of Michelangelo, you'd say, oh, what a beautiful painting. Wouldn't you expect it to be? I mean, based on all the other things that he's done. And so whatever else God has done is glorious, isn't it? His creation is glorious. His person is glorious. His work is glorious. And so we, we we've quite frankly, expect it to be that way. Nothing is in heaven but that which is glorious. Now, we constantly, in our lives down here, have to sort through things. We go through our closets and say, I've got to get that out of here. It's not, you know. We go sort through our stuff. We constantly have to eliminate that which is pulling us down or doesn't fit or doesn't work or is just taking up space. But I want you to know in heaven there's nothing there that doesn't fit, that isn't supposed to be there, and is not the highest level of what it should be it's beyond our comprehension we don't know of anything like that down here 
we, we decide we're going to buy something, and we shop, and we think, and we go online, and we compare catalog with catalog, and then we save up the money, and finally we order it and get it or go find it, and it's supposed to be the very thing that we've, we've done all this research, and it just doesn't measure up. Doesn't that bother you when you do that? You've given all your effort, time, and energy, and it just did not measure up. There's nothing in heaven like that. Everything that is there that God has prepared for us is the absolute, sublime, perfect epitome of what it should be. Romans 8 verse 30 tells us that we will be glorified. Do you know you will be like that one day? As he is, we will see him and we shall be as he is. Unbelievable, isn't it? Whatever he has for us there will be glorious. Our work for him throughout eternity will be glorious. Overflowing with wonder and praise. We'll never get over the fact that we're there. Do you know that? Every day, and there's no days in heaven, but that's the only way I can describe it. Every day, when we begin the eternal day, we'll wonder, I'm here. That I am here in this glorious place is just unbelievable. The angels are glorious. Shining ones, the Bible tells us, uh, referred to as the stars of God, the glowing ones of God, the hosts of heaven. In 2 Corinthians 12, Paul said that when he was caught up into heaven, uh, he's the only one that we know of has had this experience and came back to tell us about it, regardless of what Hollywood says and people tell you. And Paul, when he said about his experience in heaven, do you know what he said? You know how, what he described? It's unspeakable. It's unspeakable. I can't talk about it. It's so glorious. It, there's no words. I can't. It's unlawful and it's unspeakable. My, that just, all of that glory is shrouded behind those words. It's unspeakable and it's un, un, and unlawful. So great was the glory of that place. No wonder he reminds us here of our glorious inheritance. He said, listen, I've had a sneak preview. Take my word for it. It is a glorious inheritance. It's what you'd want if you had sense enough to ask for it. Which, by the way, is what God's will is for you. God's will is not something... Some people are afraid to ask God for His will because they think it's going to make them miserable. Isn't that, isn't, that, isn't that a lie of Satan? If God has it prepared for you, it's what you would ask for if you had sense enough, knowledge enough to ask for it. No wonder He reminds us that our inheritance is glorious. It's laid up and reserved for us. When I was a little boy, my mother had this... Um, certain toy that she'd bring out only at certain times for me. This is when I was a little bitty fella. And uh, I can remember it today. And she only let me play with it on Sunday afternoons because she wanted to get a nap on Sunday afternoons. And so she would bring it. She had it laid up in her closet, which we could never go to. That's where all the, you know, things were. She'd go to her closet, and I'd see her, you know, go and get this box down. And uh, you'll laugh when I tell you what it was. Uh, it didn't take much to entertain me. It was a little pegboard village, little holes, and it had little houses and cars and things, and I just played quietly with that all Sunday afternoon while Mother got her nap. And so that's what she had it. And when I think of that word laid up, she had it put up, and I could only get it under certain circumstances. Well, the Bible says that our, our inheritance is laid up for us. It's reserved for us. It's kept and guarded for us. Think of it. We are heirs of God's inheritance, uh, denoting that it is unearned. If it's God's, we really don't deserve it, do we? It, it really is not ours. It's ours because he's decided to give it to us. 
that it is God's inheritance shows us it's unearned, unmerited, and undeserved gift of grace. God designed it. He who designed the unspeakable glory of the universe, the intricacies of molecular and and biological life and the, the astronomy and all those things, can you only imagine what he's laid up for each one of us individually in his eternal glory? He designed it. He planned for it in eternity the past, and he will give it to us himself. Colossians 1 verse 12 describes it, giving thanks unto the Father, which has made us meet to be partakers of the inheritance of the saints in light, who hath delivered us from the power of darkness and hath translated us into the kingdom of his dear son. I remind you, it is a kingdom unlike any other kingdom. Think of John's description of the new Jerusalem. A cube. A city that's a cube. We can't even comprehend that, can we? A cubed city descending from heaven so glorious. How does he describe it? As a bride adorned for her husband. We see here in verse 18 that Paul uses the word riches. Now that gets our antennas to go up when we hear about riches. And God uses words like riches and gold and silver because he knows that's the closest thing that he can use to get us to understand that it's something very valuable. It will so far transcend earth's riches. But he tells us the word riches there is to describe our glorious inheritance. As humans, we highly value rich things, lavish things. And when we see this word in the Bible, it is used, of course, to catch our attention. And to let us know the excellence of something, of its lavishness. In Ephesians 2 verse 4, in the next chapter there, it tells us that God is rich in mercy. He's lavish in mercy. He's wealthy in mercy. In chapter 3, again we hear of the riches of His grace. The unsearchable riches of Christ. In Romans 11 verse 33, we read of the riches both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. In 2 Corinthians 8, verse 9, You know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though He was rich, yet for your sakes He became poor, that ye through His poverty might be rich. When He became poor, He didn't lose one of His jewels. Did you know that? When He laid aside His splendor for a while, when He became poor for us and didn't have a place to lay His head, He didn't lose His mansion. He didn't lose His riches. He, he did so so that we might join in and have those one day as well. Our Lord Jesus thought it not robbery to be equal with God because it wasn't. He's the same in, in, in coexistence with the Father. Yet he laid aside his glorious privileges for a while in presence in heaven to come down to this filthy, sin-cursed earth, so uncommon, so far from what he was used to, to, to so that we as poor, bankrupt sinners might be made rich. Why would he do that? Are you concerned that somebody else be made rich? Jesus Christ was very concerned that all the Father has given him might be made rich. All that God has, all that God does, all that God gives is lavishly, gloriously rich. What a future we have. Shouldn't that be something to be excited about tonight? What a present we have. Not just our future, We can be so heavenly minded that we're no earthly good. Oh, we have a glorious prospect. But think about what we have right now. Now, 
what does Paul say in, in Philippians 4.19, that verse that we often refer to as God's checkbook? But my God, and Paul ought to know, shall supply all your need according to his riches in glory by Christ Jesus. Now remember, he says not out of his riches. Nothing diminishes. When God supplies our needs according to his riches... He has more than enough to supply. It's not out of. If it was out of, it would diminish. The, if you take something out of a savings account, guess what? It's less than what was in there. If you continue to draw on that, it's less than what was there. But, but the Lord tells us through Paul here, I, he, he will meet our needs according to, not out of. It says, this is the standard of measurement rather than the source of the supply. God is a rich and glorious God. The Puritan Thomas Goodwin writes, in showing how glorious must be the inheritance which the saints shall have, you're blessed of the Lord which made heaven and earth. The heaven, even the heavens are the Lord's, but the earth hath he given to the children of men. The earth and all the good things in it, God has given to the human family, but heaven and the heaven of heavens he has reserved for himself as his possession. The earth he has given away to the children of men. But the celestial courts are his own inheritance. Now, this is mentioned in order to show how favored the saints are. You're blessed of the Lord. You're the blessed of the Lord. God does not prize the earth, but gives it away. In fact, one day it'll melt, won't it? But the heavens he has set apart for himself. Then how happy the saints must be that they're taken up to heaven to share God's own inheritance. The earth is not good enough for him nor does he deem it to be so for us. The Lord is the possessor of heaven, and blessed indeed must be those who are predestined to be partakers of God's own personal inheritance. That's why he says we're joint heirs, joint possessors of all that God has. The the Greek construction has it that God himself will be the inheritance of the saints including all the the bliss that will make us eternally happy. The splendor of heaven is our eternal dwelling place, and he will be our portion and our satisfaction. We will possess God himself, and he will say to us, enter into the joy of the Lord. In Psalm 16, verse 5, the Lord is the portion of mine inheritance. In thy presence is fullness of joy. 2 Thessalonians 1 verse 10 says that Christ shall come to be glorified in his saints and to be admired in all them that believe. Romans 9 verse 23, God makes known the riches of his glory on the vessels of mercy which he hath afore prepared unto glory. Here Paul tells the Ephesians at Ephesus that that they would have a fuller knowledge and appreciation of these precious things. Let me ask you, since we have all this to look forward to, and not just for time, but all eternity, these riches will be ours. Shouldn't we be here and now, because of that, be content to be, as Paul tells in 1 Corinthians 6, 8, to be content with food and raiment, therewith be content? Why should we worry about passing faulty, failing riches down here below when we have riches that will never be exhausted above? The more real heaven becomes to us, the less attraction this world will hold on us. Some status symbol here, some wealthy, expensive thing. What is it? It's just a passing thing that 
will one day be on the trash heap. But these riches are laid up. They're kept. They're reserved. Thieves can't steal them. Moths can't eat it up. Rust can't corrupt it. And Paul says that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give unto you the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him, the eyes of your understanding being enlightened, that you may know what is the hope of his calling, what is the riches of his glory, of his inheritance in the saints. Well, may the Lord bless each one and help each one of us with this, whether it's the matter of assurance or whatever it may be tonight, would you bring it before the throne of grace? Men, as you come to lead us in prayer, think about what the Lord has for us, and let's ask him to do what he alone can do.